0: This is Understanding Israel-Palestine. I'm Margo Patterson, the producer of this week's episode. I'll be speaking to international law expert Richard Falk, but first, news briefs. Thousands of Israelis demonstrated January 14th in Tel Aviv and other cities against the new Israeli government's plan to weaken the Israeli Supreme Court. The plan would reduce the Supreme Court's ability to revoke laws passed by parliament and would give the government control over the appointment of judges the president of the Israeli Supreme Court, warned that the plan aimed at crushing the independent judiciary and, if implemented, will deal a fatal blow to the country's democracy. Over 90 countries have urged Israel to end punitive measures taken against Palestinians in retaliation for a U.N. General Assembly vote on December 30th, referring Israel to the International Court of Justice. The resolution, which passed 87 to 26 with 53 abstentions, called on the court to issue an advisory opinion on Israel's ongoing occupation and settlement practices. Since then, Israel has frozen Palestinian construction, seized $39 million in tax revenue collected for the Palestinian Authority, revoked the travel permit of the PA foreign minister, and denied benefits to other Palestinian officials. Seeking an advisory opinion of the ICJ cannot and should not be a cause of punitive measures for anybody, anytime, Denmark's UN mission said. A statement released January 16 called on Israel to lift sanctions on the Palestinians. Israel's foreign minister dismissed the statement by the 90 countries as insignificant. My guest today is Richard Falk, the Albert G. Milbank Professor Emeritus of International Law at Princeton University and the Chair of Global Law, at Queen Mary University, London. From 2008 to 2014, he served as the UN Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in the Palestinian Territories occupied by Israel since 1967. Richard Falk, welcome.
1: Thank you, Margot. Good to be with you.
0: I want to begin by asking you some questions about an article you wrote that was published on the website Counterpunch January 6th of this year. The article is titled Decoding Israeli Extremism, and it begins with a quote from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, speaking December 30th, just a few weeks ago, about the new Israeli government and the bold claim it is asserting. Netanyahu says, these are the basic laws of the national government headed by me. The Jewish people have an exclusive and unquestionable right to all areas of the land of Israel. The government will promote and develop settlement in all parts of the land of Israel, in the Galilee, the Negev, the Golan, Judea, and Samaria. This is Netanyahu laying claim to historic Palestine, including the West Bank, on the part of the Jewish people. You point out that this claim of exclusive Israeli supremacy to the promised land is in direct defiance of international law, as well as the two-state solution promoted ineffectually by international diplomacy for decades now. I think many Americans' understanding of international law is fuzzy. Could you talk about how international law applies or should apply to the Israeli and Palestinian struggle and the defiance of international law represented by Netanyahu's statement?
1: That's a very fundamental question that underlies the whole struggle for this land ever since at least 1947, when the UN partitioned historic Palestine, or the Palestinian entity that was subject to a British mandate in the period between World War I and 1947. That partition itself encroached upon the so-called inalienable right of the Palestinian people to self-determination in their own territory. That was bypassed politically at the time because of the humanitarian concern over the well-being of European Jews in the post-World War II setting, given the realities uncovered of the extent of the Holocaust, so that in a sense the Palestinians were deprived of their right under international humanitarian law at the very beginning of the UN's involvement with the issue and with the UN's complicity as well as with the support of virtually all countries except those in the Middle East region and some other important countries in the global South. What really is at stake is the nature of the right of self-determination. It isn't derived from any kind of biblical connection or any kind of geopolitical support. It rests on the right enjoyed by people resident within a circumscribed geographic space it is a right of the palestinian people one can speak now that through this century of the zionist project that the jewish people have a presence in palestine that might qualify them also for a right of self-determination, a so-called dual right of self-determination. That hasn't been tested, and Israel is the last government on the earth that would like to acknowledge that because they're claiming supremacy and exclusivity with respect to self-determination in the whole of Israel, which they now pretty openly regard as all of Israel plus the occupied Palestinian territories minus only Gaza, which is defined as falling outside the promised land and is demographically threatening to Israel because it would bring two plus million additional Palestinians into whatever entity emerges as the permanent governing authority.
0: Talk about what this assertion of Israeli exclusive right to the land of Israel plus the occupied West Bank means as far as the Palestinian people are concerned. What is the worry that you have about their future?
1: Well, it it is a worry that suggests at best subordination and at worst dispossession. Both have characterized The prior 75 years that Israel has been in existence, so it would be nothing new. In 1948 war, 700,000 or more Palestinians were coerced into fleeing their homeland and their homes and denied any right of return, which is another violation of international human rights and international law. What this suggests, and it was incorporated into the 2018 Israeli basic law, is that Israel will respect no restraint on its authority to either dispossess or subjugate in the name of maintaining its supremacy over what it defines now as the whole of the promised land.
0: You note that Netanyahu's statement is not only in defiance of international law, but is at odds with President Biden's continuing insistence on a two-state solution, that is a Palestinian state existing side by side with an Israeli state. With more than half a million Jewish settlers now living in the occupied West Bank, this is a solution that is increasingly implausible, as you, among many others, have pointed out. And you note that the United States and other Western governments has used the invocation of the two-state solution, not only fecklessly, but cynically, to pretend that the Israeli occupation of Palestinian land is going to end at some point, and to continue embracing Israel even while it relentlessly colonizes the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Israel has done this for the past 54 years, and you write, it is now poised to accelerate that colonization and conclude it. With this assertion of exclusive Israeli rights, how do you believe the United States and other governments will respond to it? Do you see them moving to some admission that a two state solution is moribund?
1: Not in the short term future. It depends a great deal on the militancy of civil society mobilization on behalf of recognizing or realizing Palestinian basic rights. Civil society in the West has come a long way in the last five, six years by giving high credibility to the allegations that, with respect to the Palestinians, Israel is maintaining an apartheid regime. Human Rights Watch. Amnesty International, the Regional Economic and Social Council for West Asia of the UN, all have published and released very detailed reports on the policies and practices on which they base the conclusion that Israel is guilty of committing the crime of apartheid. And in that sense, the South African precedent is very relevant, because it mobilized civil society to conduct a wide-ranging campaign of boycott, divestment, and sanctions, and underpinned a very effective UN campaign at a time when South Africa was a strategic ally of conservative governments in the UK and the US. So civil society has a big role to play in this immediate period, and has already played it in the relation to the heartbeat issue. Uh, the Biden administration should at least be embarrassed by its silence. It has not even tried to substantively refute the claim. It just ignored it and hoped it would go away, as has the mainstream media platform. The U.S. has a legitimate state in supporting international law and human rights in relation to the Palestinians that it has refused to play. Whether it can be coerced and persuaded is a very open question, but an important one.
0: The title of your article is Decoding Israeli Extremism, and you write that it should now be very evident that progressive expansionism was always the Zionist project, even before the state of Israel was established. If anything you say, the new Israeli government is unmasking what should have been evident for years, but was obscured to those who are not close observers. I want to ask you if you could just briefly tick through a few of the stages of Israeli expansionism for listeners who may not be familiar with that history. I imagine we could spend the entire hour discussing that. (laughs) but just some of them, perhaps.
1: Very briefly, it started off with the promise of a homeland in Palestine, which it converted by stages into the uh, demand, which was honored for a state. And the UN partition resolution of 1947 envisioned dual state, state for Palestine on i think it was 55 percent of historic palestine and the jewish state and the remaining 45 percent after the 1948 war israel occupied 78 percent of historic palestine for reasons that are still mysterious to me the palestinians accepted the green line the armistice, which gave Israel a continuing claim to the 78% and contented itself with the West Bank, a hope that East Jerusalem would become the capital of a Palestinian state, Gaza and uh, the Negev. Through time, even this part of Palestine has been significantly penetrated by the Settlement phenomena that you referred to earlier, which is produced in that 22% left over to the Palestinians, an unlawful Israeli presence of over a half million settlers who are committed to not leaving the settlement under any conditions, settlement in occupied territory is considered a violation of Article 47 of of international humanitarian law as set forth in the Fourth Geneva Convention. And so it's unlawful at its base. And earlier, the U.S. even supported this interpretation of international law but used very tame language such as the settlements are unhelpful in the pursuit of peace with the Palestinians. Subsequent to the settlements was the incorporation of the whole of Jerusalem as the eternal capital of the state of Israel, as an undivided city that was expanded territorially after the 1967 war. Subsequent to that was this gradual move toward the Jewish people having the exclusive right to self-determination in the entirety of the promised land, which incorporated all but Gaza of occupied Palestine. Those are, I think, the main steps.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is Understanding Israel-Palestine. I'm Margo Patterson, and I'm talking to Richard Falk, professor of international law, and former UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in Occupied Palestine. You write, throughout the 20th century, the process of progressive expansionism was hidden from public view by a combination of Israeli domination of the public narrative and U.S. complicity, which deceived especially diaspora Zionists by assuming that Israel was open to a political compromise and that it was the Palestinians who are resisting a diplomatic outcome. Such an interpretation of the stalemate was always misleading. Let me ask you about U.S. complicity in what you describe. The United States has time and again used its veto in the UN Security Council to subvert international law as it applies to Israel and Palestine. Was this complicity as strategic as you suggest Israeli policy was over the past 70 plus years, or more a matter of situational weakness and fecklessness on the part of U.S. administrations reluctant to confront a strong interest group? Or was it some combination of both?
1: Of course, it's hard to answer that question because a lot of it takes place behind very tightly closed and locked doors. And how you balance those various pressures and considerations and try to, at the same time, not totally alienate the Palestinian constituencies and their supporters. That's sort of the state of play was this, uh, what I would call, fake balancing, fake objectivity with regard to the conflict. The more we know, the more that interpretation has been confirmed. And it was confirmed a while back in a very well-researched book by John Mersheimer and Stephen Walt called the Israel Lobby. They were denounced as authoring an anti-Semitic book by pointing out the reality. And that's been the fate of those of us that have been Israeli critics. We're called anti-Semites, whether Jews or not, and whether the evidence in any way suggests a hatred of Jews, which was the core understanding of anti-Semitism, as practiced in Europe and elsewhere. It's a very instrumental manipulation of the idea of anti-Semitism, which our leaders have played into by supporting definitions of anti-Semitism, including criticism of Israel that is more harsh than that leveled at other countries, and by being overly sensitive to powerful pro-Israeli pressure groups, most influentially
0: AIPAC. That's the acronym for the American Israel Public Affairs Committee.
1: It's become a kind of political third rail that politicians in the virtual entirety of Congress until very recently. It's affected the atmosphere of academic freedom in American universities and it's affected the way the media approaches the issue. It's a tribute to the success of the way in which Israel and its most ardent supporters have been able to control the political discourse, but they're losing that control, in my judgment, in the last uh, five to six years. That's the optimistic way of seeing these recent trends.
0: How do critics of Israel such as yourself and Jewish critics of Israel such as yourself, how do you go about diffusing that charge of anti-Semitism, or, or can you?
1: It's a dilemma, and the dilemma is and exploited itself by the allegation, because if you try to diffuse it, you give it more attention, and therefore you keep the issue alive, and most people don't take the trouble to see whether the evidence justifies the allegation. When I was special rapporteur, for instance, for the UN, I was constantly confronted with that defamatory accusation. And I chose to 99% ignore it for these reasons.
0: You're critical of how the media has explained the 2022 elections in Israel and its depiction of Prime Minister Netanyahu as constrained by the extremists now within his government. You think the situation is quite other than how it is being described. Would you talk about what you think the media is getting wrong when it's talking about this new government?
1: The background of what it's getting wrong is its silence in the presence of very strong evidence of Israeli wrongdoing toward the Palestinians with respect to human rights that has been abundantly documented by mainstream civil society organizations, what I referred to before in relation to the apartheid allegations. Complete silence. That, I think, is consistent with the government's approach, which is to downplay, if necessary, and be silent, if possible, about criminal behavior attributable to Israel with respect to the Palestinians. And I see nothing in the Biden administration That contradicts this. He's made some far-out statements, in fact, to the effect that he considers himself a non-Jewish Zionist, and he says of Israel, if it didn't exist, we'd have to invent it. Saying that without any qualifications about its behavior in at least the last 20 years, and if you were more critical and perceptive uh, throughout the course of the Zionist project. Of course, the Nazi experience gave the Zionist project a powerful rationale for doing whatever it could to rescue Jews from this kind of lethal anti-Semitism. It was quite opportunistic, in, if you look at the history of Zionism, in the early pre-World War II, pre-Nazi period, or early Nazi period, where it reached agreements with the Nazi leadership on the expulsion of Jews with the expectation that they would migrate to Israel. And at that time, the priority of the Zionist project was to create a balance between Jews and Arabs living in Palestine. Because at the time, the Balfour Declaration, which was the first victory for the World Zionist Movement and affirmed a British pledge to support the establishment of a Jewish homeland, the Jewish population of Palestine was under 10%. You couldn't have, as the Zionist Project evolved, a democratic and Jewish state without getting rid of a lot of Palestinians. And that's always been part of the dilemma facing Jewish-Israeli leaders. How do you stay democratic? and yet affirm the supremacy of the Jewish people. As they've grown more powerful from a security perspective, they've become more and more open about weighting that dilemma in favor of acknowledging the priority of supremacy over the priority of democracy.
0: In your article, you suggest that these new extremist parties in the governing coalition, the Jewish Power Party and Religious Zionism Party, are very useful allies for Netanyahu, that they will enable him to proceed to the conclusion of the Zionist project, that they are not, in fact, encumbrances upon him as sometimes they've been presented, but opportunities. Could you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Well, that really goes to the assessment I've made that Israel since 2018 has been much more open about this last phase of the Zionist project, which is to consolidate the claim of Jewish supremacy, that only Jews have a right to self determination in a non Jewish country. It's, a, it's an extraordinary claim if you think about it in terms of its historical character of displacing the native population. I would add one other thing which is, I think, important for understanding this latest phase, and that is that all settler colonial success stories, of which the U.S. is the primary one, but Canada, Australia, and New Zealand are others proceeded to either destroy and eliminate the native population or totally marginalize it. I think Israel has come to that stage where it either has to marginalize the Palestinian presence or the settler colonial project is in deep trouble. It got in deep trouble in the two cases of failure, One most dramatically that we're familiar with, which is South Africa. The other is Algeria, where the French tried to establish a permanent presence. So I think Netanyahu has stepped into this historic situation where either he completes the Zionist project or it becomes much more problematic than it has been for the past century.
0: You anticipate new Israeli attempts at further massive Palestinian dispossession. Given that the United States and the Europeans have for decades resisted efforts uh, in the UN Security Council to level consequences on Israel for its violations of international law, what is going to stop Israel from proceeding with these efforts?
1: The Israelis hope nothing will stop them. And I think the hardcore Diaspora support in Jewish communities shares that view. Increasingly, my experience is that the liberal Jews, uh, which are powerful in the US, are split. They really don't like this latest phase of Israeli-Zionist evolution to come to the surface. They're either being silent as they haven't been before, or actually have joined organizations like Jewish Voice of Peace that are overtly opposed to what is going on in Israel and have at least recently favored a sustainable and just peace that involves sharing Palestine with the Palestinian people and rejects the notion of dominance and exclusivity.
0: That was Richard Falk, former U.N. Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in Occupied Palestine and an expert on international law. This is Understanding Israel-Palestine. To hear a full recording of today's episode, you can check out our podcast or go to our program page on the KKFI website at kkfi.org and listen to us online.